Uh, well, it's great to be here. Grace and I have been away the past two Sundays, being with our friends at uh, One Harbor Church in Moorhead City, North Carolina. I'll just give some quick feedback on that. This is uh, me teaching with our elders and staff team. We um, got there on the Saturday, actually arrived a day late because of cancelled flights and things. A bit of a nightmare getting out there. Uh, but uh, went into preaching on the Sunday and then on the Sunday into a retreat through to the Wednesday for their elder and staff team, which is a uh, considerably bigger church than ours, so 71 people we had in the room at its max with elders and staff. And uh, <coughs> last Sunday, Easter Sunday, at, uh, at Moorhead, had three services, 7 a.m., fancy that, 9 a.m. and 11 a.m., and, and uh, 3,000 people across those three services uh, across the four sites of the, of the church, four locations, 1,700 people at the Moorhead sites where, where I was. So it was interesting to, to see a church which is considerably larger than ours and see some of those dynamics and how that works and learn things from that and that. Uh, I think one of the things that always impresses me when I'm with my friends in America is, is their generosity. They are generous people in all kinds of ways in there, uh, financially and uh, kind of relationally and emotionally, and we really appreciated that. And it was also really interesting to see, again, it's three years since we've been able to be at One Harbor. We were meant to be there Easter two years ago, but because of COVID, we couldn't get there. And uh, so it was interesting to be there again after three years and see how they contextualize and contend for the gospel. So American South, much more religious than our context, uh, driving from the airport to Moorhead City on the coast, billboards all along the highway, Bible verses, invitations to church, flicking through the radio channels. Pretty much every radio channel seems to be a Christian one. Uh, so it's much more religious, but also uh, there's a lot of uh, kind of thin belief, a lot of saccharine belief. And so it's interesting to see how the church is doing it, both contextualizing to that southern culture, but also trying to contend for the gospel and cut through some of the sugariness of it and help people to see who Jesus really is. Uh, it was great that we could go as a family. Felicity and Nancy came with us as well. That was such a blessing. And it was great to catch up with our friends. And looking forward to a number of the guys from One Harbor uh, being with us in town over the next couple of weeks. Uh, week after next, we have our advanced global conference happening in Bournemouth, people from around the world coming. And the next two Sundays, we've got international friends of ours here with us. Next Sunday, Ryan and Kate Termois-Hazen from Common Ground Church in Cape Town will be here. Then we have the global conference. And then the following weekend, uh, Ben and Trina Whitaker from Adelaide will be with us. Also, Josh Eldridge, who's a worship leader from Washington, D.C. So we're really looking forward the next couple of Sundays to having friends from around the world with us. It's going to be great. Right, this morning we are in the story of Jonah. And looking in our Bibles, it might feel a bit out of sequence with what we've been preaching through recently. If, you, if, you've, uh, if you're a regular at Gateway, you'll know that we're teaching through the whole of the Old Testament this, uh, this year. And we've been in the books of the Kings. And uh, the books of the Kings are, are here in our Bibles. And then the book of Jonah is here, almost at the New Testament. And so it might seem like we've skipped a good third of the Bible to jump to the story of Jonah. But that's not actually the case because although Jonah comes towards the end of the Old Testament in terms of how the Old Testament is organized, the story actually takes place in the era of the kings. So this is a story which connects very much to the teaching on the books of the kings we've been in the last few weeks. And the, the books of the kings help us to orientate ourselves to who Jonah actually was and to see that he was a real historical figure. Two kings Chapter 14 describes how uh, the boundaries of the nation were restored during the reign of Jeroboam II in accordance with the word of the Lord, the God of Israel, spoken through his servant, Jonas, son of Amittai, the prophet from gath 
heifer. And then when we turn to the book of Jonah, Jonah is introduced as the prophet, the son of Amittai. So we see from the book of Kings that Jonah was a real man, a prophet ministering in this era of the kings. It also helps us to orientate ourselves theologically. Get to 2 Kings chapter 15, and we read about a very wicked king of Israel called Menahem, who uh, during his reign, the Assyrian nation starts to invade the nation of Israel. And then we get to 2 Kings 17, and a man called Hoshea is now king of Israel. And again, the Assyrians are invading, and it gets to the point where actually they seize control of Israel and deport a large number of the people of Israel to Assyria. And so in 2 Kings 17, it says this, All this took place because the Israelites had sinned against the Lord their God, who had brought them up out of Egypt from under the power of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. They worshipped other gods and followed the practices of the nations the Lord had driven out before them, as well as the practices that the kings of Israel had introduced. nation of Israel meant to be God's people, meant to belong to him, meant to represent him, meant to worship him. They had wicked kings who led them astray, and they start to act like the other nations act. They are no longer living as the household of God, as the people of God, and uh, they forget the significance of the distinction of being God's people. They start to compromise, to blur, and to drift. They end up scattered amongst the nations because they have acted like the nations. There's only 200 years between the glories of the reign of King Solomon and the Assyrian conquest of Israel. 2 Kings 17, 23 says, So the people of Israel were taken from their homeland into exile in Assyria, and they are still there. It's a tragic story of disobedience, rebellion, and loss. And the story of Jonah happens in the middle of all that. In the era of the kings, as there's a great threat from the nation of Assyria against the nation of Israel. And the story of Jonah is actually very surprising. There's a real irony about it, because Assyria is the great enemy who are finally going to destroy the nation of Israel. And yet the Lord calls Jonah to go to the Assyrians in the city of Nineveh with the message of life. And what we might expect, what, what Jonah certainly expects, is that the Lord God is going to pronounce judgment upon the Assyrians. But instead, the Lord God offers the Assyrians mercy. And that's something which Jonah is not at all happy about. We're going to pick the story up in Jonah chapter 4. The story so far, the first three chapters of Jonah have told a story which you probably know, you might know if, even if you don't come to church, because it's a kind of a familiar one, that God says to Jonah, go to Nineveh, Nineveh preach to the Assyrians. No, Jonah doesn't want to go. He runs away, gets on a ship, tries to get as far away as he can. There's a great storm, ends up with Jonah being thrown over the side of the ship. Jonah gets swallowed by a big fish, gets spat on the beach, repents, follows God, obeys, goes and preaches in Nineveh. And the people of Nineveh recognize how they have sinned against God. They repent, and God showers his mercy and blessings on them. And it says this, But to Jonah, this seemed very wrong, and he became angry. He prayed to the Lord, Isn't this what I said, Lord, when I was still at home? This is what I tried to forestall by fleeing to Tarshish. I knew that you are a gracious and compassionate God, slow to anger and abounding in love, a God who relents from sending calamity. Now, Lord, take away my life, for it is better for me to die than to live. But the Lord replied, Is it right for you to be angry? Jonah had gone out and sat down at a place east of the city, there he made himself a shelter, sat in its shade, 
and waited to see what would happen to the city. Then the Lord God provided a leafy plant and made it grow up over Jonah to give shade for his head to ease his discomfort. And Jonah was very happy about the plant. But at dawn the next day, God provided a worm which chewed the plant so that it withered. When the sun rose, God provided a scorching east wind, and the sun blazed on Jonah's head so that he grew faint. He wanted to die and said, It would be better for me to die than to live. But God said to Jonah, Is it right for you to be angry about the plant? It is, and I'm so angry, I wish I were dead. But the Lord said, You have been concerned about this plant, though you did not tend it or make it grow. It sprang up overnight and died overnight, and should I not have concern for the great city of Nineveh, in which there are more than 120,000 people who cannot tell their right hand from their left, and also many animals? It's a great story. Jonah reminds me of Saul, who we looked at at the beginning of uh, this little series, working through the books of the kings. Saul struggled with his uncontrollable emotions, which led to his downfall, and uh, back then, a few weeks ago, I talked to, uh, referenced this quote from Kathy Keller, pull up your uncontrollable emotions by the roots and you'll find your idols clinging to them. And when we look at Saul, that first king of Israel, his idolatry of his selfishness and self-obsession and his anger and all the rest, those idols clung to the roots of his emotions. And here with Jonah, we see something similar, that for Jonah, life has not worked out as he would like. He's got this idolatry of what he really wants, clinging to the roots of his emotions, and uh, becomes captive to those things. And I don't know if you've noticed that life often doesn't work out as we would like. That's how life often tends to be. There's all kinds of things we want, desire, plan for. If I ruled the world, this is how it would be, and again and again, that's not how it is. So this story raises a question for us. What are you going to let disappoint you? What are we going to let disappoint us? There's a, a degree of choice in this, I think. There are things that we can choose to be disappointed about or choose not to be disappointed about. When disappointing things happen, there's always an emotional response. The emotional response comes first. That's how we human beings are made. We respond emotionally to stuff. But then there's a conscious choice, a kind of rational choice that follows on after it. And when something disappointing happens, we have that choice, there's the initial emotion, but am I then going to follow my emotions? Am I going to become slave to them? Are my idols going to cling to the roots of my uncontrollable emotions? Or am I going to discipline and control my emotions and choose a different way of acting? And I know there are times when I let my dis disappointments affect me in a way that they really shouldn't. And, and sometimes the things which disappoint us are, are trivial things which won't matter by this evening, won't matter by tomorrow, certainly won't matter in a year's time, but we can have an emotional response to them which are disproportionate. Just little things. Uh, when I was out in North Carolina last week, four mornings I got up at 4 a.m. to go turkey hunting with my friend Donnie. That's what you do in America. Didn't catch any turkeys. It was disappointing, although not for the turkeys. I'm sure, <laughs> I'm sure they were very happy about it. But there's disappointments which happen which are like that, just trivial things, which things which don't matter at all, but there are other things which really are disappointing. There are things which afflict us, which aren't just trivial things, aren't things which will be forgotten by tomorrow or next year, but things which actually are uh, lifelong if you're stuck with the disappointment of a dysfunctional family or if you've got long-term sickness. Those things are 
not passing. They're significant. They're lasting. What impact are disappointments going to have on us? Over the past couple of years, we've all had plenty of opportunity to practice this. There have been all kinds of disappointments that all of us have had to experience. Now, some of those have been relatively trivial. If you had to have a holiday cancelled because of a pandemic, that's really bad news, but it's in this great scheme of things, it's relatively small. But if you couldn't attend the funeral of a loved one, or you had to cancel a wedding, or if you were a student paying £9,000 a year to just sit in your room and look at a screen for a year, those are real disappointments. They're not trivial. They're real things. So how can we process our disappointments, both the trivial things and the significant things? Second thing is that we then see how Jonah responds to disappointments. We, we might expect the story of Jonah to end at the end of chapter 3. Jonah goes, he speaks to the people of Nineveh, they repent of their sins, and God spares them. Yes, hooray, job done. But that's not where the story finishes. Instead, we have Jonah chapter 4. And in that chapter, we see Jonah furiously angry, crushed by his disappointments. He is so disappointed that God hasn't pressed the nuclear wrath button on the people of Nineveh. And so it says that it seemed very wrong, or it was exceedingly evil to Jonah, that God had shown them mercy and grace rather than wrath and judgment. And you can understand that because the Ninevites, the Assyrians, were exceedingly unpleasant. The Assyrians were infamous for the brutality of their warfare, the horrific way in which they treated their enemies, the utter merciless brutality they showed compared with the Assyrians, Vladimir Putin is a pussycat. They were notoriously evil and brutal. And so Jonah reasonably expected God to judge them. They were the chief threat against the nation of Israel. But Jonah seems to be more upset about God's mercy than God is upset about Nineveh's sin. It's a dynamic that's going on in this story. Now, we need to know that God does get angry at sin. The reason why the people of Israel, in the end, were taken captive by the Assyrians was because of their sin. Perhaps true that previous generations emphasized the wrath of God more than the mercy of God. I think our danger is we tend to do the reverse. We're very quick to talk about the mercy of God and maybe don't think enough about God's judgment and anger against sin. We need to hold both together. And that's why repentance is important. It's why the Assyrians repenting when Jonah went and preached them is important. There's mercy comes because of their repentance. It's why it's wonderful to baptize Matteo and see this life made new, that sense of being cleansed by God. But Jonah is disappointed by God's mercy. He's disappointed by God's grace. He seems actually to be disappointed with God himself, with God's character. And so as he prays, as he grumbles to God, Jonah actually quotes God's own description of himself. Back in the book of Exodus, Exodus 34, God reveals himself to Moses, and it says, He passed in front of Moses, proclaiming, The Lord, the Lord, the compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness. Now, God reveals himself in this way to Moses just after the incident of the golden calf. The people had rebelled against God. They'd made an idol, started to worship it. And God is angry about that. But then the way that he treats the people actually is with more mercy than with judgment. Where there should have been judgment, mercy comes. 
And God reveals himself to Moses and makes this declaration. What is God like? This is what the Lord is like. Compassionate, gracious, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness. And in this story, Jonah grumbles to God and says, I knew it. I knew this is what you were like, God. What you should be doing is blasting the Assyrians to hell. And instead, again, the compassion thing. Haven't we had enough compassion? Haven't we had enough mercy? Haven't we had enough grace? Isn't it time for some serious wrath? And God treats the Assyrians with mercy, with grace, not with wrath and judgment. Jonah hates it. He hates this grace being shown to the enemies of his people and actually wants to die himself. For Jonah, death is better than grace. And so he builds himself a shelter, builds himself a hut, and he's going to sit there because although God is doing the God-compassion thing again, Jonah's hoping that God might come to his senses and change his mind and decide to blast the Ninevites after all. And so Jonah builds a hut and waits, and hopefully God's going to change his mind and kill these stinking Assyrians. Now, the job's been done. He's fulfilled the task God's called him to. He's preached. He's offered repentance and grace to the Assyrians. They've responded. He could just go home, but instead he's wallowing, nurturing his disappointment. He's feeding his idols. He's digging deep into his bitterness. But in the midst of that, there is something which does make Jonah happy. Uh, leafy plant, a vine that grows up overnight. And he's disproportionately happy about it. He's exceedingly very happy, very glad about the plant. He's as happy about the vine as he is angry about Nineveh, and he's furious when the vine gets taken away. And what we see here is that Jonah has a real problem with proportion. And I do think there's some things which are really relevant to us in what we've gone through the last couple of years in terms of thinking about proportion. Uh, it was interesting talking with some of my American friends about this in their context, especially in the American South, where there has been such bitterness and, and polarization politically over recent years. And just talking about how proportion has been lost, that Christians who should have things in clearer proportion have just got swallowed up into the political bitterness and divisiveness and kind of forgotten the realities that no matter how much you might dislike this person, at the longest, the longest that a U.S. president stays in power is eight years. And so it is only eight years in the sweep of history. What is that? Eight years is, well, nothing. And for a believer who says they confess that Jesus is Lord and trusting that he will return and make all things new, well, in proportion, it's really nothing very much at all. But so many people completely swallowed by the polarization and their whole lives consumed by fury at what's happening politically. And it's easy to look at our American brothers and sisters and point out the errors perhaps of their ways, and, but we need to look at ourselves as well because I think for us, I think for myself over recent years, all the political stuff we've gone through, all the things with Brexit and other political stuff and the stuff through the pandemic, at times it's been very easy to forget a sense of proportion to get things out of proportion, to get things wrong. And the Lord God reminds Jonah that this plant, this vine, was all about grace. Jonah hadn't earned it. He hadn't planted it. He hadn't caused it to grow. It was all grace that caused that to happen. And the city of Nineveh, much more significant than the vine. Now, we're not told how Jonah responds to God's last words. God speaks to Jonah and says, look, you cared about the vine. I care about the 120,000 people. And the animals, I always find that fascinating. That's the last word in this story. I care about the animals as well. 
And we're not told how Jonah responds to that. But the point is how we are meant to respond. If you're a Christian, you are a living stone. You've been called by God. You've been filled by his Spirit to be built into a spiritual house. We've called this series A House for My Name. We're meant to be a living temple filled with God, knowing him, worshipping him, enjoying him, proclaiming him to the world. So how, as members of God's house, should we respond to disappointment? What's, what's a Christian response to disappointment? Some verses that have really spoken to me over the last few weeks come from the Apostle Paul's letter to the Romans, Romans 15, verses 4 to 6. It says this, Everything that was written in the past, why are we spending the best part of a year teaching through the whole of the Old Testament? Why have we spent the last six weeks in the book of the Kings, which I know for some people has probably felt quite hard going? This is why. Everything that was written in the past was written to teach us. So that through the endurance taught in the scriptures and the encouragement they provide, we might have hope. May the God who gives endurance and encouragement give you the same attitude of mind toward each other that Christ Jesus had, so that with one mind and one voice you may glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Why have we got the story of the kings in the Bible? Why have we got the story of Jonah? It's written to teach us, to encourage us, to help us learn endurance, that we might have hope. And, and this is helpful practically to us. Uh, as you're reading your Bible, if you're struggling, and some parts of the Bible are difficult, much of the Old Testament especially is hard. There are things which are difficult for us to comprehend. The culture is very different. Difficult. It, different. It's very difficult for us to kind of contextualize, get into it, understand sometimes. And, uh, and when you get to bits of the Bible like that, and you're thinking, what is this about? And why am I reading this? Remind yourself of Romans 15, verse 4. The reason this is written for us is to teach us so we might learn endurance, encouragement, and hope. And we to see that in the story of Jonah. The purpose of what's written is to make us more like Christ. The purpose of what is written is to help us build the house of the Lord. And there's some things which these verses in Romans teach us here, I think, which help us to see how Jonah should have responded in the face of his disappointments, then perhaps how we could respond, what a Christian response to disappointment might look like. The first thing is that when we're disappointed, we need to be able to endure. If you're facing disappointment, you need to be able to endure. You need endurance. Back in the day when I used to take part, part in triathlons and marathons, there was always a part, always a point in the race where I wanted to give up every single time. In a triathlon, it was normally at the start, start the swim, and it's a melee of people kicking and fighting, and you always think you're going to drown. In that first 100 meters of the swim in a triathlon, I always wanted to stop. And in a marathon, there's always a point, always a point when you want to stop, because it's just such hard work. But of course, it's much better to endure. That's the whole point of a triathlon or a marathon. It's about endurance. That is the point. So why stop? It's stupid to stop. The reason you signed up for this wretched thing is because you wanted to endure. So endure. And when we face disappointment, we need to endure. Often it's much easier to give up, or it feels it's easier to be give up. So sometimes in the disappointments we face, we can't give up because you're kind of held by the circumstances. If your disappointment is a debilitating illness, you, you can't, in a sense, give up on that because you have no choice. If your disappointment is something in your family, you can't escape your family. Other disappointments you can kind of walk away from. But often 
what we're called to, always what we're called to is endurance. And Jonah should have, should have endured in his calling. He was called by God. He knew God. He was a prophet anointed by God to proclaim God's word. And, and what he should have done was endure in that, through the disappointments, even though he didn't like what God was calling him to. He should have laid hold of God, trusted God, and pressed through on it. Instead, we see him wallowing in his disappointments, wallowing in his anger. And so this morning, if you are facing disappointments, if you came in here this morning carrying disappointments, maybe trivial ones that tomorrow won't matter, maybe really significant ones that will matter tomorrow, then we need to ask the Lord to give us endurance. We can press through and not give up. Another thing that we see from these verses in Romans is that when we're disappointed, we need encouragement. Now, I find the story of Jonah encouraging just because... Well, partly because it's just funny. You read this fourth chapter of the story, and it's a funny story. The, the anger, the bitterness of Jonah, we're meant to see, it, we're meant to see the humor in it. His, 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 his anger is so ridiculous. He's got such a severe case of ridiculitis, which is the worst disease that many of us suffer from. And so this helps me, because when I'm suffering from a bad case of ridiculitis, and that happens at times, unbelievably but true then looking at the story of Jonah helps me kind of wake up to how silly I'm being and often just laughing at ourselves actually is the best answer to disappointment Jonah took himself far too seriously suffered a chronic case of ridiculitis and so that encourages me seeing well this guy's in the bible the the man with extraordinary ridiculitis and that helps me that encourages me but something else which I think is really important here in terms of how we find encouragement is to note the way in which Jonah is on his own throughout this story. Now, there are times when he's interacting with other people. So on the boat, he's interacting with the sailors, and in the end, they throw him overboard. In Nineveh, he's interacting with the Assyrians, but only to say, you're going to die, you're going to die. Doesn't not any meaningful interaction with them. At no point does Jonah have any companionship or friendship. And that is a recipe for disappointment. Now, when we face disappointments, when life hits us with bad stuff, the natural tendency for many of us is to clam up. We go into that self-protective, isolated defensiveness. We pull down the shutters. We put up the barricades. We cut ourselves off. We hide ourselves away. And that can seem the way in which to kind of protect ourselves, but actually it's become self-destructive. And for Jonah, I think Jonah could really have done with some friends. What would this story have been like if he'd actually had some friends with him who could have spoken some sense to him, could have encouraged him? And so if you're facing disappointments, my, my urging to you would be don't withdraw from community. Instead, press into community and find encouragement. It's great that you're here this morning. There are a dozen other things you could have chosen to do today. I'm so glad you're here. It's good that we're here because we could encourage one another. Uh, and again and again, I've seen it where people are facing disappointments in life, and rather than digging into community, they withdraw from it, and that itself becomes even more discouraging. Disappointments pile up. If you're facing dealing with disappointment, push into community. See what it says here in these verses in Romans. May the God who gives endurance and encouragement give you the same attitude of mind toward each other as Christ had, so that with one mind and one voice you may glorify God. There's a, a togetherness that we need in order to find encouragement. Jonah was alone 
got very disappointed, wallowed in it, fed his personal idols. If you're disappointed, I urge you, dig into community. Don't withdraw. Then a a third thing we we can see from these verses in Romans is that when we're disappointed, we, we need hope. We need hope. All these things are written to give us endurance and encouragement that we might have hope. Now, Jonah had lost sight of the hope that he had. He, he had this great hope. He belonged to the covenant people of God. He, he was a prophet. He was called by God, anointed by God. He knew what it was to commune with God. But he had narrowed his hopes down to one particular thing, that God would press the wrath button and destroy the Assyrians. And because God didn't do that, Jonah is lost in his disappointments. He'd lost sight of his hope. And for us, if we, like Jonah, put all our hopes into our particular plans and desires, we are inevitably going to be disappointed. Build our lives on a particular hope we have. Almost certainly it's going to fail, just as it did for Jonah, because we are not captains of our own fate, masters of our own selves. That's not how life works. And so if we invest everything in what we're hoping for, again and again we're going to be disappointed. If we're going to find real hope, real joy, we need to look elsewhere. Peter Lightheart says, we find real joy through the realization that we're not in charge, never were in charge, because that's someone else's job. The trouble with Jonah was that he thought he should be in charge. He thought he knew better than God. He thought God had got it wrong. He thought God didn't understand. He thought God should have pressed the nuclear wrath button rather than the mercy button. What we need to do is find our hope ultimately in Christ Jesus. We're just one week on from Easter Sunday, Resurrection Sunday, the day when we remember and proclaim especially the victory of Christ over death, his resurrection from the grave, something we've again seen witnessed in Matteo's baptism this morning. Now think how different Jesus was from Jonah. Jonah went kicking and screaming to Nineveh. It took a storm, being chucked overboard, nearly dying, being swallowed by a fish. It took all that to get him to Nineveh, and then he was still reluctant, and then he was bitter at the response and the results. Think about how Jesus came. Jesus came joyfully. It was for the joy set before him that Jesus endured the cross, scorned its shame. And we're told here in Romans that we should have the same attitude of mind as Christ Jesus. Same attitude of mind as Christ Jesus. I know it's easy. My natural temperament, perhaps, is to be more like Jonah. What I'm called to as a Christian is to be more like Jesus. Let's be more like Jesus than Jonah. Jesus is the one who himself endured in order to bring us into hope. When we're facing disappointments, we look at the example of Christ, who did endure even to death in order to give us the hope of life. And so we should be encouraged because of who Christ is and what he has done. If you're a believer, you know Jesus, find fresh hope and encouragement in him today. If you don't yet know Jesus, I'd urge you, look into who he is, look into his claims, look into the hope that it can be yours in Christ. I believe that that is the surest bet. Put our hopes in our own plans and desires. Inevitably, they're going to be dashed. Put our hopes in Christ. He never fails. So be encouraged in him. And think how 
as well as being so different from Jonah, think how different Jesus is from those wicked kings of Israel. Those kings who should have led the nation in service of God, but instead led the people into sin and eventual destruction and ruin. Jesus isn't a king like that. Jesus is the good king, the true king, the one who ministers to our souls. Unlike Jonah, Jesus willingly ministers grace to us. Jonah was so disappointed at God's grace shown to the Assyrians. Jesus so delights in showing his grace to us. And so whatever disappointments you might be carrying today, little tiny ones, massive weighty ones, let's come to Jesus. Let's look at the story. Let's learn from what is written. Let's find fresh endurance. Let's find fresh encouragement. Let's find fresh hope. Let's look to Jesus, great prophet, great king, the one who gives us life. Turn to him and receive his grace again. Let's pray. Would you stand with me and I'll pray. We're going to take uh, bread and wine in a moment. And as we do that, it's a great moment for us to come afresh to Jesus and say, Lord, would you minister your grace to me? We're also going to we'd love to pray for people. If, you, if you're feeling disappointed, push into community. Ask somebody for help. Ask for prayer. Receive from Jesus again. Lord, we do come to you. Lord, thank you that you are the good Savior. Thank you that you're the great prophet. You came not reluctantly, but for joy to us. We who deserve nothing but the wrath and judgment of God, and you find nothing but mercy and grace. And so, Lord, I pray, King Jesus, for anyone here today, all those who are carrying disappointments, whether it's small things or large things, that we might turn to you again. We might speak words of truth to one another. We might minister to each other by your power and in your name. And Lord, that we would find endurance where we need it, encouragement where we need it, hope where we need it, that we would be people who joyfully, gladly embrace your amazing mercy and grace to us. Not, wouldn't, we wouldn't be like Jonah, curmudgeonly and bitter, but instead we'd turn to you with one mind, knowing Christ, being increasingly Christ-like in all that we do. In your name we ask it, Jesus. Amen. Amen. Amen.